Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, this is the end of the summer. Feels like the end of the summer too. Now, the end of the book of the Psalms, and of course, it's the end of the, the whole the, the whole Psalter itself. You may be aware of this, maybe you aren't though, but that the Psalter was arranged sometimes after its composition. So the Psalms were not composed in the order we have them. This was not the last Psalm composed, nor was Psalm 1 the first. Uh, but rather, later on, uh, temple priests and musicians, you know, they, they kind of fit everything into an order that they thought was helpful. And so Psalm 1 and 2, you may be aware of this too, that they function as a kind of introduction to the book of Psalms. And Psalm 146 through 150 uh, all function to close the book. It's what we normally call a doxology, and Psalm 150 especially is a doxology, which just means a short hymn of praise. You often use these at the end of a, a meal, a worship service. It's, it's a way of summarizing, of closing something off. So Psalm 150 then can be understood as a kind of summary of the entire book of the Psalms. It's telling us something, reminding us that everything that breathes should praise God. Now, you know what kind of world we live in. Hurricane Ida slammed into New Orleans, other parts of the eastern United States this week, bringing widespread devastation, death. The horror in Afghanistan continues. Haiti, still recovering from another earthquake. COVID and its effects continue to wound, kill, and divide. The sadnesses continue. But so do the joys. School is restarting for most children. That's joyous, at least for the parents, but maybe for the children as well. Universities and colleges, they're coming back. Babies are still being born. Lots of us are back at work. We just had summer, two beautiful months of warm weather, and for lots of us, that meant some degree of time off or time away from the normal routines. And of course, pumpkin spice lattes are back. That can be a curse or a blessing. You can file it wherever you like. But we live in this world which has joy and sorrow. Curses and blessings, happinesses and sadnesses, and in all these things, big and small, we're commanded to praise God. But the question before us really this morning is, how do we do that? What does that mean? Um, why even do we need to do that? This is what Psalm 150, and closing off the whole Psalter, is trying to help us understand. So I've got three questions to kind of guide our time together. I want to talk first about who is praising or who should praise Second, why are we praising? We'll answer that question. And the third, how should we praise? How are we praising? Now here, when you read the first line of the psalm, praise the Lord, exclamation point, what comes to mind? Is it a person singing on their own? Is it uh, a person being quietly thankful to God in prayer? Is it a jovial, enthusiastic worship leader telling you to stand up or to clap your hands or something? Well, one of the tricky parts about reading a translated Bible is that English doesn't have a great way to express, express plurals. We say you, that can mean you, an individual, or you, you know, a whole group of people. And in that first line, praise the Lord, you, it, it's not even there. It's sort of implied, you praise the Lord. So here's my question. Do you think it's singular or plural? You can answer it in your head for a second. If you said singular, 
you are wrong. And we love you, and you're very smart and intelligent, but the phrase is plural, which means when the, when the psalmist has this in mind, when he wrote this, he means a whole group of people, a crowd, a congregation uh, singing together. Now, how do we know that praise means singing and not sort of group reading or something like that? Well, the main reason we know it is because of all the instrumentation listed later in the psalm. You don't use instrumentations for reading. You use it for, you use it for singing or, or chanting or you know, some sort of musical thing. But to be fair, praise is a broader word than just singing. It means something like to give a glowing description of, to make a big deal out of, to point out the best features of. So you might be able to praise God in a way that's not singing, but church history at the very least has taught us that the main way God's people have applied this is they sing together. And they sing psalms, and they sing other passages of scriptures, and they sing original songs with biblical ideas, but they sing. To be a Christian, to obey the command of 150, it means getting together with other Christians in a plurality to sing and to praise together. Now a couple of questions maybe immediately arise. What if you don't like singing? (laughs) I think Psalm 150 would say, you don't have to like singing. There's there's nothing about liking praising there, but it doesn't mean you're exempt from the command to praise God with other Christians. You might choose to sing, even though it's not your favorite. And you may not be a sing in the shower, sing in the car kind of person. Maybe you just sing at church. That's totally fine. I am not particularly fond of commands to be patient, but we don't get, you don't get an exemption from those commands. Liking or disliking patience or liking or disliking singing, that's not really the point. The point is that we're commanded to do it. Now, what if you can't sing? Well, to quote the theologian Buddy the Elf, singing is just like talking except longer and louder and you move your voice up and down. That's what, that's what, that's what singing is. And again, in Psalm 150, you don't have to be good at singing. There's nothing here about being good. Uh, there's nothing in Psalm 150 about staying on key. Praise isn't less praisey if you're kind of pitchy or slightly flat or whatever. But the more you sing, the better you'll get at it if you're kind of trying. Doesn't mean you get to lead the singing. We don't do like a full rotation here or whatever. But, but don't let a lack of ability stop you from singing. Now look, if you really want to push this and you're like, I really don't want to sing. I really don't think it's, it's necessary the way you're talking about it. I think I'm open to you finding alternate ways to praise God besides singing. I think it's possible, but it takes a lot of creativity and a lot of effort. Singing is simply the low-hanging fruit, and in terms of the historic church, it's the one that we've done the most by far. But let me just kind of poke just a little bit deeper for a second. I think, it's mostly, mostly a thought, mostly a hypothesis, for those of us who aren't that musical, who don't think we sing very well, I think the main thing we actually have to get over is how much we care about what other people think of us. I think for a lot of us, we just don't want to look bad. We don't want to feel silly. We don't want people to think we're weird. We feel uncomfortable when we sing, and we don't like that feeling, and then we kind of go find reasons to justify not singing. I had a mentor of mine from a long time ago who didn't sing very well. (laughs) It was hard for him to stay on tune for whatever reason. Actually, I don't think I ever asked him what the reason was, if he hadn't been trained or hadn't done it much, but he sang loudly, and he sang happily, and he always laughed, you know, whenever he got something wrong or sounded funny. But I actually think that takes a lot of humility to get to that place. And for some of us, this short, simple command, praise the Lord and praise the Lord with others, it's going to be hard to obey because it means putting yourself out there and potentially looking foolish. But who should praise God? This, command, this, this psalm would say God's people, all of them, in, in groups. Now part two, why are we praising 
Well, the simple answer maybe is that we're praising God, but I want to dig a little bit deeper than that, see what this psalm teaches. If you were, we're still there in verse 1, I know we're not moving very quickly yet, but it says to praise God in his sanctuary and to praise him in his mighty heavens. Now, to praise God in his sanctuary, I think that refers to the place God dwells. Now, ancient and modern Christians will speak of the sanctuary to mean something like this, like the room in the church building where you sing and pray and preach, and that might be the meaning. Maybe the psalmist is telling them, praise God while you're all together in a church sanctuary, but I think the structure of the psalm, uh, based on the structure of the song, he means something different. Psalms often say the same thing twice in slightly different words. They make these little couplets where they'll say one thing and then sort of say it again using slightly different words. It's a poetic device making a point. So the, psalm says, the psalmist says, praise him in his sanctuary and then praise him in his mighty heavens. And I think both of those lines are driving home a similar point, that God is otherly. He's not like us. He's not sort of living only in the church building, nor is he living in Rome or on the top of some mountain or whatever. He dwells, as the scriptures say, in unapproachable light, in the spiritual realm. And we are to make much of him there, where he is, in his sanctuary, in his heavens. Though, of course, we would also say God is everywhere. Second, in verse 2, we are to praise him for his mighty deeds. What that means is that we're continually looking back across the sweep of history at the widespread things that God has done. And we're trying to make much of, of God for how he delivered Israel from the Egyptian army, but also for how God brought his gospel to communist China. And we sing of how God spread the news of Jesus to many nations on the day of Pentecost, but also how to this day he's making the gospel flourish in many parts of Africa. We praise God that for how he called the Apostle Paul, but also for you know, how he called Amy Carmichael or Billy Graham or whatever. We, we praise God for his widespread deeds, and widespread, de widespread deeds, by the way, also include the very small things in your life. It's right and fitting to praise God that your toddler or your puppy or just you yourself, that you slept well last night. It's right and good to praise God for, for giving us cheesecake you know, and sunsets. It's right and good to praise God for a friend on the first day of school or for a friendship that's lasted decades. Because the book of James tells us every single good and perfect gift, all of them have come down to, to us from the Father of lights. So when we say praise him for his mighty deeds, we're talking about like everything, the whole scope of history, micro, macro, whatever, big, small. It's, it's all lying before us. We praise God for all his deeds. And we also praise God, according to the psalm, according to his excellent greatness. Now that's an interesting phrase, according to his excellent greatness. It kind of means God's character, but really the idea is here is that our praise is in proportion to the excellence of his greatness. We praise in, in relation to, in proportion to his greatness. Now, how, how excellent is, is God's greatness? Exceedingly so. Exceedingly so. So therefore, if your praise should be in proportion to that, your praise should not be half-hearted. As if God himself had scored a 6 out of 10 on the excellence scale. But rather, your praise should be of the highest quality because God is of the highest quality. We're going to get into this more when we talk about some of the instruments. But consider for a moment some of your praise of various things. Let's say you're a car person. And you're currently very excited about, I don't know, the Ford Bronco re-release or the, the, the new, the new uh, truck or whatever. If you have no idea, like cars, whatever, just, just sort of use your imagination. But, but think about how the, the enthusiasm with which you might speak of a car's features or styling or off-road capabilities or, you know, you know, whatever it is. But on the galactic scale of greatness, when you measure a Ford Bronco against a nebula, 
Like the Ford Bronco is like, it's barely registering, right? Yet often our enthusiasm for God who created the nebulas, it pales in comparison to even how we talk about trucks and cars. Or let's say you're in a new romantic relationship and you're at the point of, of romance when it's all heart eyes and sighing and love notes and all that stuff. It's a glorious phase, of course. And think about how you speak of your new partner to your friends and family. He's so perfect. Everything he does is amazing. I can't think of a single thing wrong with him. Everything I learn about him, it just makes me happier, right? Like that phase. On the galactic scale of greatness, romantic love, like it, it exceeds a Ford Bronco, but, but compared to God, yet when does our enthusiasm, our energy, our excitement for God ever come close to how we'd speak about romantic love? Our praise, the psalmist says, is according to his excellent greatness, And that means even your best praise of God falls far short of what it ought to be. You might arrive at the place where you can praise a Ford Bronco or romantic love rightly. Like you may be able to get that down in words and phrases, uh, but you're you're never going to really arrive at appropriate praise for God because he is the galactic scale of greatness. It, It doesn't contain him. He is it. So we praise God in his sanctuary. We praise him for his works and we praise him in proportion to his greatness. Now, before we talk about how we praise, and we'll talk about all the instruments, all that stuff in a second, I want to consider for a moment a kind of side question that maybe you've had. Maybe it's bothered you about praise itself. It's bothered me in the past, and the question is this. Why does God need to be praised? If he's so perfect, so wonderful, majestic, great, all these things, why does he need praise? C.S. Lewis raises this question in one of his books. Because after all, if you met a human who demanded praise the way that God demands it, you'd be turned off like that. If someone stops you when you leave today and says, praise me in my sanctuary, praise me according to my excellent greatness, you're like, is there something wrong with you? Or, you know, they're hopelessly vain, maybe. Maybe they have a mental thing or whatever. Because what we hear is, I need to be told that I am awesome. And we're like... Can't you get some self-respect? Like, who, who goes around and asks that? But when God says that, does it sound self-serving or narcissistic? Does it sound, sound vain or needy? When God tells us to praise him in his sanctuary? Well, I want to give you two ways to think about praise. And I've, I've kind of partly borrowed this from C.S. Lewis. But first of all, think of a piece of art. Now, whatever kind of art you find appealing. When you say that piece of art is admirable, what do you mean? What does it mean when when a painting or a sculpture is admirable? What we mean is, if someone were to make a big deal out of this piece of art, gush over it, admire it, it would not be a mistake. But in some ways it would be right and fitting. When someone goes to Paris and gushes over the sublime beauty of the Mona Lisa, we're not like, well, they're mistaken about that. We're like, no, maybe old paintings aren't your thing, but you understand why they'd make a big deal out of it. There's an inherent quality to it. In a similar way, God does not need praise like a person fishing for a compliment. Rather, praise is us expressing the inherent quality of him. That we're just articulating what is exactly so right and good and admirable about about who he is. If praise is paid to God, it's it's not vain, it's right. It, It simply expresses the quality of a thing. The second way to understand praise and why we're commanded to do it is to think about how the enjoyment of a thing naturally overflows into telling someone else about it. Uh, We were in uh, Jen's hometown over the summer and we bought a painting from a local artist. It's a picture of the sun shining on uh, Georgian Bay. 
And what's the natural impulse when you see a painting you like? You want to point it out to someone else. If you've, ever, if you've ever been in a museum or whatever, you're like, come see this one. You know, come look at this one. You want to share the enjoyment of a particular painting with someone else. The enjoyment of a thing actually grows and in some ways is completed when you have someone to share it with. And Jen and I, when we got this painting, we took it and we showed it to our kids and then we showed it to Jen's parents and to other people we came across on the way home. We're like, look at our painting. We really never buy paintings, so it was very exciting to us. But we, we, we praised it because we, we valued it and we instinctively wanted to invite other people into it. And the participation of others actually completes our enjoyment. And if you look around the world, this, this happens everywhere. You see lovers praising their beloved. You see hikers praising their mountain views. Hockey fans praising their teams, movie watchers praising their famous actors, and of course, lots of us are using our likes and hearts and double taps to reward the most beautiful and inspirational things we find on social media. When we do that, we're instinctively saying, isn't this lovely? Isn't this amazing? I need to share it. I need to participate in it with other people. And in fact, I've heard from that one of the most painful parts of losing a spouse or losing a close friend is that the sharing you enjoyed, sometimes for decades, is, is sort of vaporized. That you've become used to telling a single person about, about your joys and, and participating in them together, and now they're just sort of gone, and many experiences are, are deadened or somewhat deadened without someone there to share it with. So when it comes to God, what we're saying is we praise because the sh- sharing of the praise is part of the experience. Hearing other people praise God, that's part of the experience. It completes the praise when we all do it together. Now to sum up this little rabbit trail here, we're not praising because God needs it. He's not vain. He doesn't need to be told how awesome he is. We praise God because of his inherent quality and because it's part of the process. Praise does something to us. Now part three, how should we praise? Look at verse three to five. We should praise according to the psalmist with a trumpet, with lutes, with harps, with tambourines, with dance, with strings, with pipe, with sounding cymbals, and with loud clashing cymbals. And I want to briefly kind of explain each, and then we'll talk about what, what, what he's doing here. Trumpet is not like our modern trumpet. Uh, they didn't have the metal working, you know, the valves or whatever that we do now. It was something more like a ram's horn. You know, picture a simple kind of basic trumpet, maybe with a curve in it or whatever, but it really plays one note. And what they would use trumpets for is that they'd sound them at the beginning of a festival or a feast or some kind of event. One, you know, loud, long blow on the trumpet and, and, you know, everyone would come in or get started or whatever. It wasn't really an instrument you'd sing along with. But lutes and harps were different. They were primarily used as accompaniment. And they're actually, if you read the psalms through, they're mentioned all over the place because it's pretty likely that people sang the psalms with lutes and harps regularly. Tambourine, sometimes called the timbrel. Uh, it's better known to us. It's that little hand drum with small cymbals. In fact, Jared's got one up here. You want to see what it is afterwards. It has like this little thing and you, you can hit it with your, your foot. Jared does that. But also with your hand, you, you're probably reasonably familiar with that. Dancing, we're going to come back to in a second because that's a whole sort of separate matter. But the psalmist also includes strings, which is not a reference to a single instrument, but a whole class of them saying, use all the ones that have strings on them. And the pipe is a shepherd's flute. Again, actually not something normally used in worship, but played by shepherds while they're out in their fields with their flocks. And then the cymbals, more percussion instrumentation, multiple kinds of cymbals, and likely, we don't know exactly what they were, but probably one that was high sounding, one that was low sounding, a soft and a loud. Not something you'd sing along to, of course, but something used to make an effect at different, at different times of a song or an event. 
God is telling his people through the pen of the psalmist that any and every kind of instrument can find its highest and best use in worship to God. And he's saying, you you should go and find every kind of instrument and figure out how you can use it to praise God. And you can use percussion, and you can use strings, and you can use woodwinds, and brass, and keys. It's natural and appropriate to employ all of these in praise to God. I think Psalm 150 is telling us it's the highest use of, of any instrument. The best possible use we could make of one is in worship to God. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Because I think some of us have grown up in traditions that emphasize one kind of instrument, like a piano or an organ, that's often the case, to the exclusion of all others. And others of us have come from traditions that don't use instruments at all, that emphasize you know, the voice alone. Psalm 150 is clearly calling for variety, for inclusiveness of instrumentation, for the utilization of all kinds of things, even instruments that to Israelites would be like, that's not really like a, a temple instrument. That's like a non-churchy kind of thing. The psalm teaches that we should find ways to use instruments, even if they kind of aren't easy to sing along with. Maybe there's a different way or a different place in the worship service where they can be used. Now, of course, you have to have people who play the instruments. I don't think the psalm's telling all of us that we all need to play the cymbals or all need to play the lute. So if you're a smaller church, you know, that's fine. Just play with what you have, so to speak. And additionally, this passage also does not mean that all instruments are equally useful. Not all are easy to sing along with. A church might, is, is, I would say, is free to lean on instruments that are easier to sing with. But, however, a church that takes this psalm seriously, I think should be careful not to forbid instruments or to create a ranking system where some instruments are more churchy than others. I mean, after all, pianos and organs, they're not mentioned in the Bible. And, and they're very easy to sing along with. But when we raise those instruments to the level of basically being a command... I think we make an error. I think it's fine to have individual preferences. I mean, we all like the music we listen to as teenagers. Like, that's fine. But I think based on this psalm, that a church ought to be diverse in its instrumentation, or as diverse as it can be. Because the psalmist is, is saying, every instrument you can think of, all the different kinds, let's use them all to praise God. I think we can apply this together. We could, we could use more musicians here. If you play something, we would like to try to find a way to use it. You're like, I play the bagpipe. Like, well, that's a, we'll, we, we're going to have to be pretty creative. We're going to have to find an avenue for that. It's like, I, I do the turntables. I, like, I, don't, I don't know exactly how it all fits. We don't have all the answers. But we're saying we should use the means that God has given us as a church to enhance our corporate praise, our corporate singing. Okay, now a word about dancing. And all the deep Presbyterians, you know, getting nervous at this point. Closet Pentecostals getting excited. Dancing is mentioned four times in this psalm or in the Psalms, it's commanded twice. Once in Psalm 149, verse three, if you want to go take a peek at that, and then right here in Psalm 150, where it's clearly saying dance is part of uh, the praise of God. Now, the kind of dancing the psalmist has in mind, it's not, not secular, they're not in a club, it's not sensual, anything like that. It's a kind of celebratory dance. And actually, if you read the Old Testament, Israelite history has multiple instances of people dancing in celebration to things God has done. Miriam and the Israelite women, it says, they dance after the Egyptian army was drowned and Israel was delivered. King David danced uh, when the ark was being returned to Jerusalem. And there are others, other examples as well. And historians speculate it was a kind of whirling, turning, kind of spontaneous dance. Uh, not, yeah, not like a club, more like a locker room after a big sports win, a, a boisterous wedding dance, something like that. But sometimes God seems so real, he's done something so marvelous that 
You can't contain it. There's too much joy to stand still, and you have to move. That's why we dance at weddings, right? We're, we're, we're trying to express some of the joy of the moment. Now, can all people play the lyre? <laughs> can all play the trumpet? Of course not. But some can. Some should. Can all people dance? <laughs> uh, not well, you know, or whatever. I, I don't think Psalm 150 is saying everyone has to dance, just like we all don't get our own set of symbols to bash together. But some Christians can. And if, you, and if this is a way that this seems like a legitimate means for you to express yourself in praise to God through some movement, I think you go right ahead. This may be the means God has given you to praise him. Clearly, some of his people have it. How should God's people praise in all the ways they can, with all the means they have. This is the point of the psalm. According to God's excellent greatness, look, we're never going to arrive at the place where our praise will be enough. We will finish a worship, worship service and like, I think, you know, I think we're done. I, th- I, think, I think we finally met the bar. No, no, our creativity, our effort, it's never going to be sufficient, but we work at it anyways. The psalm ends with the final words of verse 6. Everything with breath should praise God and then praise the Lord. Now, if you've been with us on our journey through the Psalms, if you can stretch your mind back to the series we did on Abraham, you know that there are many times when it's easy to praise, when God's close, when God's near, when he's working. And there are many times when he's hard to praise, when you've messed up, when it feels like the world is conspiring against you. And when you begin to understand sort of what Psalm 150 is calling for, the quality and the consistency of praise that God expects from his people what you'll realize is you, you don't measure up. <laughs> you're, you're not making it. I mean, sometimes it's even hard to imagine what it would even look like. Imagine a person who is never hoarding any glory for themselves. Imagine a person never grumbly, never grumpy, always thankful. Imagine not being rattled by troubles, sidetracked by joys. Psalm 150 weirdly makes us like, oh man, I'm kind of falling far short. But therein lies the key of Psalm 150. There was one whose whole life was praise to God. The way that this psalm teaches, there was never a moment when Jesus Christ failed to praise God. When he went through all the hard stuff, slander, storms, betrayal, all that stuff, none of that shook his praise. When he triumphed, when things went well, when, when the friends and the, cl- the crowds and everything, it, he continued to praise then. His whole life was this glowing picture of the Father's love for a sad and sinful world. And he praised God even as he went to his death. Dying for all the people who would not give, glory, give God the glory he deserved. All of us. See, the truth is, lots of days, we don't praise God in his sanctuary. <laughs> we, we don't praise him for his marvelous deeds. We're consumed with all the things that we need and we don't have and all the things he hasn't done. If anything, Psalm 150 reminds us, you're not here because you are better at singing than other people. You aren't here because you're less selfish. You are here because the Father of lights sent his most perfect gift, his son, to die for you. And because Jesus is making everything new, he enables you to praise God. He takes grumbly, grumpy, selfish people and he makes them new steadily so that they breathe out praise the way this psalm commands instead of complaints. And he is the one who gives us strength to walk through all the valleys, walk over all the hills, being thankful and grateful to God. Because of what Christ has done, all of life is praise. All of us who breathe should make it our mission to then make much of him. Let's pray together. 
God, we thank you for this closing to the Psalter, which shows us, reminds us again that our praise falls far short. What's demanded, of, what's, what's commanded of us here, we, we can't do consistently. Only with your help, only with new hearts and new minds. And so what we'd ask for this morning, Lord, is for you to renew us. Make us different. Make us people whose instinct is praise, who desire to praise, who desire to love you. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.